Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, we start in a new series called Truth and Love. We're going to go through the book of 2 John. And the name of this sermon is Who You Have and Who You Need. And Pastor David will be reading 2 John 1 through 3. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, we are continuing, or sorry, not continuing, starting. Uh, I had a first service earlier today, so I'm continuing. Uh, starting a series through the small but good letter of Second John. Uh, and we're calling this series Truth and Love. And if you've been around uh, church circles for any amount of time, uh, you might have heard that phrase before, truth and love. Uh, and I think oftentimes we think of truth and love as something like uh, opposite weights to balance on a scale, Sometimes we use this paradigm, truth and love, to kind of evaluate our own lives, our own hearts. Uh, and often it kind of goes this way, right? If, if we're coming across a little bit salty, a little bit, little bit harsh, we might say, but I'm, but I'm telling the truth. We think, well, we need a little bit more love there as well. Or at times when we feel like we're tipping a little bit too much to the scales of the ushy-gushy and kind of uh, losing a little bit of the truth, we, we often think of this paradigm as opposite weights to balance on a scale. As we go through 2 John and then after uh, 3 John later this summer, we're going to see that these two ideas of truth and love are actually not as much opposite weights on a scale to balance, but actually more interconnected parts, almost more like hydrogen and oxygen to water. That if you lose one, you lose the whole. That these two things are so integrated, so connected, that it's not so much a balancing act as it is both of these components working together, truth and love. So to guide our thoughts uh, today, please do meet me, Second John. Today we're just going to be looking at the first three verses, Second John 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and throughout the summer, as I mentioned, we'll go through 2 John, then 3 John. There's going to be a couple of standalone sermons and uh, passages throughout the summer. But as we go through this book, uh, may God make this true of us, this, this component of truth and love, both as individuals and as families and as a community of believers. Uh, may it be uh, by his spirit through us, in us and through us. 2 John 1 through 3. Let me read it before we continue. It says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Amen and amen. Um, If you have never seen an episode of the Antique Roadshow, you are missing out on a small part of what it means to be a human. (laughs) Some of you, I can hear the chuckles. Some of you uh, maybe know this show very well. I think there's actually like 20 seasons of this gift of God's common grace that he's bestowed upon humanity. So those of you who haven't seen the Antique Roadshow, Uh, Those of you who are Googling it right now, perhaps, you will find and discover that when you see it, it's this gem of this piece of art that uh, is all about the thrill of the discovery. 
that it's this show full of ordinary people like you and like me who have gone through their attic or their basement or their, or their garage, and they've you know, dusted off old boxes handed down from generation to generation and full of uh, uh, maybe lamps or picture frames or a toy or a stamp or a map, um, junk, <laughs> just random stuff that is collected maybe over generations. And these ordinary people bring them in and display them on this table, and they're standing right by an expert who looks it over and analyzes it and appraises it. And, and the, the grip of the show is that thrill of discovery that sometimes uh, the expert says, well, yeah, actually, it is junk. It's really not worth anything. <laughs> but there are those gems of the experience when you can almost see the excitement of the expert building as they're talking about this item, and you start to realize, and they start to say, do, do you know what you have? There's like three of these left in the universe, and this is the only one that George Washington himself you know, sat on, and you, if you lose this chair, you're going to lose a piece of... And, and they start to bubble over the top, and they, and they tell the man, what you have is worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Do you realize what you have? Do you realize what's been sitting in your attic or, or, or sitting in your garage or sitting in your basement collecting dust in this absolute treasure that because it's been with you for so long, you've, you've forgotten just how precious and beautiful and valuable and important it really is? Christian, fellow brother and sister, do you realize what you have? Do you realize, uh, maybe if you've been uh, walking with Christ or living with Christ for maybe years or even decades, do you realize what's been yours? Has your Christian journey, has your Christian faith perhaps been relegated to the attic or the basement of your heart or your life? Perhaps there's dust collecting. Perhaps that which at first when you knew it was so vibrant and real maybe has now started to get shoved into the corner of the house of your life. Do you realize what you have? Do you realize the value and the treasure of what is yours? Second John, these first three verses remind us, they show us, and they not only show us the value of what we have in Christ, but they show us what the implications are for our life. And these first uh, couple verses will go to show us that in Christ, in Christ, dear Christian, you are in truth embodied and love incarnate. That's who Christ is. He is truth himself embodied, come to us, and love incarnate. And by being in Christ, in those two small words, in Christ, we have a summary of the message of the gospel that our faith truly is being united to him, connected to him by faith. And because we are in him by faith, we are in truth embodied and love incarnate. Look at the first two verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And real quick, that first clause, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Who is speaking and who is listening? Who's writing this letter and who is receiving this letter? Uh, the elder is um, most likely uh, a reference to the Apostle John himself. 
the similarities between 1 John and 2 and 3 John, the different uh, themes that are carrying over, uh, seem to indicate that this is another letter written by the Apostle John. And he writes to the elect lady and her children. Now, the listener is actually probably not an individual and her biological children. The listener is actually probably uh, a community of Christians, a church, and children being those of the family of faith. All throughout the Bible, God often refers to his people, and specifically in the New Testament, the church as a bride or a, a, a wife or a woman. The bride of Christ, she has been bought and chosen by God. We are married into the family of faith, that he is the bridegroom, we, the Christian community, are the bride. Also, throughout this letter of 2 John, the recipients are often addressed in the plural, seeming to indicate that this elect lady, elect being one of the ways in which Christians are identified, that we have been chosen by God, that we have been elect of him by sheer and utter grace to the elect lady and her children. Throughout the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, specifically, we've seen it already in 1st John, that children often refers to Christians, those who are children of God. So here we have this letter of John written to this community of believers, this church, and all that is in them. And see what he writes. Those whom I love in truth, and not only I, but all those who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. And we see very quickly, especially in verse 2, that this idea of truth is not not only or not merely facts to know. It's at least that. It's at least, it's at least important that we know uh, uh, all of who God is, all of what he said, but it's more than just a mental thing. It's at least that. It's more than facts to know, but it's actually a, a person to know. That truth itself has been embodied to us. It's the, the wholeness, the all-encompassing nature of who Christ is and what he said and who God has revealed himself to be through his son. Uh, Pilate asks the famous question in the Gospel of John, what is truth? Remember that question? And Pilate asks, asks that perhaps not realizing the profound irony of that question being asked to Jesus. What is truth? Perhaps not knowing that four chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus has already said, I am. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Undoubtedly echoing back to uh, the book of Exodus. Remember when Moses in the burning bush experience? Moses said, well, who are you? Who, who, who should I say sent me? God says, I am that I am the fullness of reality, the fullness of, of truth. God is, period. And along comes the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. What is truth, it is asked. Jesus has already answered, I am the truth. And we see that, that this question, what is truth? And Jesus saying, I am truth. Catch this profound human need and divine solution that, that you and I are actually longing for because all humanity, all of us, individuals, societies, all humanity has a God-sized need to know truth, to find truth, to find ultimate reality, to find our ultimate meaning and purpose and identity. This is a human need of every single one of our souls. 
And sometimes when we think about uh, finding truth or, or discovering truth, sometimes our mind, uh, our imaginations go to maybe a large stack of dusty books on, of world religions and people scouring through them looking for truth. Uh, sometimes your imagination might go to someone hopping on a plane and, and, and backpacking around Asia uh, looking, looking for truth. And for some of you, that actually might have been your story. I know that for some of you, maybe it was a journey of, of being confronted with, wait, all these different religions, and, and you had searched through them and ultimately found Jesus. Some of you, that's your story. For others of you, you might say, that's, that's not my experience. I've never traveled the world in, in search for truth. I, I never did get a big stack of books to look through for truth. But I can encourage you, and I can show you that we are all looking for truth nonetheless, because we're all trying to answer that, those questions of what's my meaning? What's my purpose? Am I valued? Do I have value? If yes, where do I find that? What's my identity? And those are all questions that all society, religious or not, is looking to find. Sometimes we'll put our, our meaning and purpose and value in our work or our career or our credentials or what we do. Kind of what we do becomes who we are. That we're not just going to work to, to um, provide for our families and to, and to use our gifts to bless the world. We're going to work to prove ourselves. We're going to work to build our purpose and identity. We're going to work because we want to know that we make a difference. That's meaning. That's us searching for an all-encompassing truth and reality that our heart needs to tap into. We have this need of meaning and purpose. Sometimes we look for um, our identity, maybe in sexuality. Maybe you're looking for identity in a role that you play in your family, maybe mother or father or grandparent or uncle or aunt. Maybe you're building your identity off uh, popularity or, or who you know or who knows you, the circles that you run in. Do you realize underneath all of that, whether very religious or not religious at all, underneath all of that pursuit of the human heart is a deep soul need to find and tap into ultimate reality. Friends, in that search for an all-encompassing purpose, an all-encompassing meaning, an all-encompassing truth and reality and identity, realize that that is found in an all-encompassing person, an all-encompassing Savior. That truth is not so much something, but it's someone, it's Jesus. That he is, that's why this language in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us, the truth that will be with us forever. That in this search, may you find what you have been searching for in him, in Christ. And if I'm speaking to you today and you would not identify as a Christian, and you would say, actually, I am on that search, would you see that this is a truth that is actually already pursuing you? Maybe the journey of even either being in this place or if you can hear my voice wherever you might be listening to this message, maybe you can even trace back the ways in which truth, Jesus Christ, has already been pursuing you up until this point. And for those of you who are already Christians, already believers, as you look back on your story and your testimony, you realize and you start to see that the words of the song are, are true of you, that I sought the Lord 
And afterward, I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found no Savior true. No, I was found of thee. That when we come to Christ, we look in the rearview mirror and we realize that Christ has been pursuing us much longer than we may have realized. This is a truth embodied that Christ came to this earth, from heaven to earth, that he might pursue out of love you and I. And this truth is not just a truth that is pursuing us, and that itself is reason for praise. But fellow Christians, fellow believers, this is a truth worth sharing. It's a truth we have to share. It's a truth we're compelled to share. It's a truth that we've actually been commanded to share, that we, we've been made God's witnesses, that God has a mission, and we, the church, are called to live out that mission in the world. We've been tasked with the role of ambassador and missionary in our own circles, in our own spheres of influence. It's a truth that we are called to share. And we live in a day and age, in a time in a, of history, where as we seek to show and tell the gospel, as we seek to live out uh, and explain the truths of biblical Christianity, uh, you're going to run into some pushback. That's not new to this historical moment. That's been true since the beginning of time. But one of the unique ways that we face pushback, fellow believers, in this time is you're going to run into either someone literally saying to you or sensing through someone's body language or tone of voice or uh, facial expression. You're going to run into the idea or the ideology uh, that the world says, which is essentially this. Uh, people will say, listen, aren't, aren't truth claims kind of divisive and don't truth claims make prideful, kind of self-righteous people? And the idea behind it is, hey, if we're going to live in a, in a pluralistic society where we all got to get along, we got to downplay the truth claims. These truth claims are not helpful. They're going to create prideful, self-righteous people. That's what society says, right? You might have heard someone say that to you, uh, or certainly uh, you've observed it from afar, maybe overhearing, or it's been something that you've sensed yourself. And because of this world that we live in, there is a temptation for us as believers to kind of mute our witness, to kind of fade into the background. Because we know if we share the truth of the gospel, that's going to fly in the face of, of what society says. Society says that's going to be harmful to do. So how are we supposed to make sense of this? How are we supposed to make sense of whether someone asks you that or you sense that? Don't truth claims make divisive, prideful, self-righteous people? One of the ways that was very helpful for me to kind of make sense of that or make sense of our response to that is to see the qualitative difference, the qualitative difference between the truth claims of biblical Christianity and the gospel and, the and all other truth claims. There's a qualitative difference that we can't miss and I think will be helpful for us. First, we see that the claims of biblical Christianity are not something that we as Christians have claimed that we have decided or even discovered by our own morality, by our own superior intellect. Because if, if the truth claims of biblical Christianity were something that we said as believers, hey, we decided this. Or if we said, well, we discovered it, we found it first. Do you know what would happen then? It would create 
prideful, self-righteous, divisive people. Because at the core of the heart of that is, well, we figured it out, and now everyone else needs to get fall in line. Or we found it first. And there's a sense of pride that comes with that. There's a sense of, well, everyone else who's just a little bit either less enlightened or just a little bit behind the curve, they need to catch up to speed with where we're at. Now, if that was the truth claims that Scripture describes the believers making, then that would be prideful and divisive. But that's not at all what biblical Christianity is saying. What, what Christianity is saying is that if God had not first spoken, we would know nothing of him. The, the artist needs to reveal to the art his identity. The one who wrote the play needs to reveal himself to the characters in the story. And if God had not first spoken, we would know nothing of him. That God has revealed himself to us, and that act alone is an act of his sheer love and his sheer grace. That all throughout biblical history, we see God constantly pursuing us. He creates us and he knows us. He pursues us in our, in our brokenness and sin even. God pursues us. He reveals himself to us in the Old Testament through the prophets, right? He reveals himself uh, in the written word of the Bible. He reveals himself through Jesus Christ himself. He puts his spirit in Christians, in believers, to bring back to mind all that God has already revealed himself to be, all that he has done. Do you see the core in the heart of God's revelation? That it's nothing as Christians that we can come to pridefully. We don't have the gospel because we were intellectually superior. We don't have the gospel because we were morally superior, that we were just good enough that God said, you know, you guys are pretty good people, so I'm, I'm going to give you truth, unlike all these other people over here. That's not biblical Christianity at all. God has revealed himself to us, and that in itself is an act of grace. Some might say, yeah, but listen, a whole bunch of religions claim that God has spoken to them. How do we respond to that? Again, see the qualitative difference. Only biblical Christianity is claiming that truth is someone, not something and not only someone, but a someone who is God himself and fully God, fully man. And not only someone who is fully God, fully man, but someone who has gone to the cross to die as a sacrificial substitute on our behalf. Only biblical Christianity claims that. And do you know what that means? That the core and center of reality, the core and center of truth himself is a humble, self-sacrificial act for us. No one else makes that claim. No one else claims that God has sent the second person of the Godhead to come and die for us. So that the, the message of the gospel is not you find me. And those who just happen to reach enlightenment, those who just happen to be morally superior or intellectually superior, they'll make it. That's not the message of the gospel at all. God doesn't say you find me and then watches us try. He finds us. He reveals himself to us, and he goes all the way to the point of death to do it. And that creates in us. It, well, it kills in us, if I could say. It kills superiority, which gives way to humility. 
And it, it kills this idea that to share the truth that we've got to make some sort of, some sort of self-asserting uh, power claim. Instead, the biblical gospel produces in us not a heart of self-assertion, but self-sacrifice. That we die for others because the center of the truth of the gospel is someone who has died for us. Do truth claims create prideful, divisive people? The gospel shouldn't. And if we do find that pride, fellow believers, if we do find that pride and divisiveness and self-centeredness in our hearts, it's because we're, we're out of step with the gospel that the deeper and deeper and deeper we go into the gospel, we see the opposite of superiority or pride or divisiveness. We see a heart of someone willing to die. And friends, this is news. This is a truth that's pursuing you. And if you are in Christ, it's a truth worth sharing. And even in the gospel itself, we find both the motive and the manner in which to share the gospel, in which to share this truth. It's truth good enough that we cannot not share. And it gives us both the, the, the motive and the manner to do it. Let's first start with what the motive is not. <laughs> There's kind of two equal and opposite ditches that we could fall into in the Christian heart of seeking to share the gospel. There's a moralistic way that we could come at sharing the gospel, which is a ditch to fall into. And that is coming from a motive and a heart of, I am right and you are wrong, so please fall in line with me. That's a moralistic way to approach sharing the gospel because underneath it is, again, this subtle idea that how, how wonderful it is to be me to have the truth that someone else is not quite up to speed yet. I'm right, you're wrong, fall in line. That's a moralistic approach to it. It's an approach that is, that is kind of saturated in and through with pride. God doesn't call us to share the gospel out of that motive, out of that heart. But there's an opposite ditch that we can fall into, right? We cannot not... Sorry, English majors. I know what I just did. We cannot not share the gospel because of this idea of kind of this... Um, who's, well, who's to say... Or there really is no truth. Because that logic actually implodes in on itself. That if we don't share the gospel because we're kind of saying in our heart, well, who's to say what truth is or isn't? Catch the irony of, of that statement. Who's to say? Well, actually, by asking or saying that or asking that, you're saying that you're the one to say. <laughs> or if you say there are no truth claims that's a truth claim. There is no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth claim. So the logic actually implodes in on itself. So we can't come at it pridefully. We can't throw up our hands and say, hey, listen, there's so many buffet options. Let's just stop even trying. The gospel provides a middle way, a different way, a different category altogether to give us the motive to share. And it gives us a motive of love, of love. Because the gospel is not only something that you and I need, fellow Christians, not only something that you and I have, but it's something that the world needs. That if we are sharing the gospel because we had a huge need, a soul-deep, God-sized need that he has supplied and fulfilled and, and saved us, then when we share the gospel, we're sharing out of love. Have you noticed 
we do this with all sorts of other things. If you get a new toy, a new car, a new watch, a new app, uh, a new friend, and you love it, and it's incredible, and it's changing your life, have you, you evangelize for it, don't you? The topic could be something totally different. Hey, how are you? Hey, have you seen my new phone? You should get one. <laughs> we can't help but do it. Why? Because it has been so transformative, so helpful, so beneficial to us. We just start to evangelize. If the gospel, if Christ has truly transformed your heart and truly transformed your life, you won't be able to help but to share it and not out of a heart of pride or superiority, but out of a heart of love. And this is why, if the gospel at its core is a message of grace, catch this, don't miss this. Someone spills a jar of pickles in the grocery store, you know, clean up on aisle four. Someone comes and mops it out. If it's a really bad mess, something really bad happens, they send in, you know, management. We've got a big mess in aisle four. It's more than pickles. It was something else. If it's a really bad mess, a really terrible thing, they send in corporate. <laughs> the bigger the problem, the higher the authority that you need to solve the problem, right? Friends, do you realize that I, we, all of us, humanity, we are so broken, so lost, I am so messed up. This is what biblical Christianity claims. Cheery, isn't it? I am so messed up that it took God himself to come fix it. This is not a solution that God, you know, that clean up on aisle four. No, no, no. God had to dispatch God to come and fix and heal and save me. And that, to the core of my heart, that humbles me through and through. So that when we share the gospel, we are affirming what Scripture already affirms of us. I am a broken person in need of a Savior. And then when we say, and so are you, it no longer is prideful, is it? Because we're saying, hey, you're just like me. I'm just like you. I'm looking at a mirror. We need a Savior. It's a grace that, has, that we needed, and it's a grace that the world needs and if the world needs it, it's, the gospel is like sitting on a cure to a terrible disease. To not share it would not be loving. So don't, don't, share, or don't, don't love people as a means to an end of sharing the gospel. One of the ways we love people is by sharing the gospel. It is by showing them truth. That in and of itself, it's an expression of love. You have what the world needs. And the gospel itself gives us a motive, a pure motive of love. And it also helps us to share with humility, knowing that if we were saved by grace, not our moral superiority, not our intellectual superiority, not by our pedigree, not by the family you were born in, not by the networks that you have, but all of God's grace makes us humble, doesn't it? That when we share the gospel with others, they can sense in us the love with which we have been first loved with Christ. Share it. Because in Christ, you are in truth embodied and love incarnate. And fellow Christians, if until, until you realize, until you see how broken the world truly is. Now, there's a temptation for believing. I'm just talking to Christians now, so if you're not a Christian, you can eavesdrop in. This is family talk. But Christians, 
there can be a temptation for us to see the brokenness in the world, what's happening on our news feeds, what's happening in interactions, what's happening in the world, and there can be a temptation to get mad at it, to just get mad, to just look at brokenness and get angry and bitter. If I can urge you, if I can plead with you, don't let your heart get hard toward brokenness. Let your heart get soft toward brokenness. Because until you realize that when you are looking at a broken world, you are looking at a mirror. The brokenness that you see out there is a mirror for who you and I are before Christ. And until we realize that, we will not be able to freely share the gospel with both love and humility. See it, truth embodied, love incarnate, come for you. And if that is yours in Christ, do you know what you have? Do you realize what you have? Do you see the value? Do you see the implications of it? If that's true, then you have. It is yours, grace and mercy and peace. If you are in Christ, grace and mercy and peace are yours. Look at verse 3. This is what it says. Grace and mercy and peace. See how creative I am with my main points? Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. It doesn't say grace, mercy, and peace might be with us. It doesn't say grace, mercy, and peace have a high probability of being with us. It doesn't say that these are carrots to chase. It doesn't say that these are things to achieve. It says that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. They're ours in Christ. And very quickly, grace is God giving us love that we don't deserve Mercy is God keeping wrath that we do deserve. And in such a way that both of these things together culminate in peace, right? And peace is not a stalemate. Peace is not merely God just tolerating our presence. Peace is a fullness of reconciliation, perfect relationship restored. We have peace. We who were once enemies of God are now reconciled in His Son. Once enemies, now seated at His table. Peace has been made through the cross. Dear Christian, this is yours. This is true of you. This is the good news that you are sharing, the implications that can be true of those that you know and love. And the gospel grounds our identity in truth and reality, that an all-encompassing meaning and purpose and identity are ours in Christ. And it not only grounds us in reality, the reality that we need and we've been searching for, but it molds our hearts to form hearts of love for others, to form broken hearts for others, for the lost, for the world. This is what it produces in us. Dear Christian, do you realize what you have? Maybe something that has become in your life dusty, put in a box in the attic or the basement. Perhaps your faith has been shoved aside for quite some time. Maybe it's time to bring it back into the center, dust it off, see, how, see what God says of who we are in him and recognize and see that as you are remembering the gospel or receiving the gospel for the first time, see that this passage is saying to us that in Christ you have all that you need. See what you have. In Christ you already have 
all that you need. And until we see how God thinks of us and God sees us, we won't be able to think rightly about ourselves. And until we see how God loves others and sees others, we won't be able to love and live rightly toward others. But you've been given the resources. You've been given the gospel. You've been given a mission. So as we look at this gospel, if in Christ you have all that you need, first thing you need to do is know that. Just know that. Know that. Let it transform your life. And then secondly, share it. It's too good of news to sit on. It's news too important, too needed to a world in desperate need of the Savior that has saved you. So may we do that, and let me pray. Father, we, we ask that you would drive these truths deep into our heart. Drive them into our heart in such a way, Lord, that we are overwhelmed by the value of the gospel, a gospel that perhaps for many here who are listening to this message, maybe have known for years. Perhaps, Lord, a value to someone listening to this message who has not yet taken that step of faith. May they see that all that we think that we are losing in coming to you is a candle to the sun. It pales in comparison to who we have and what we have in you. So, Father, shape us by this truth. Shape us by your Son. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.